something. It's difficult to compartmentalize sin. Let's take David's sin with Bathsheba as an example. David's sin, and I know you know this, but let's, let's take the progression. David's sin by having sex with another man's wife. In fact, it wasn't just another man's wife. She was the wife of a long-term faithful friend, one of his mighty men, one of his warriors. He'd been with him a long time. When Bathsheba finds out that she's pregnant, David calls Uriah, her husband, home from the battlefield to set up a situation where Uriah could be thought to be the father of the baby. Adultery led to deception. And also, quite possibly, one thing we don't think about, but we will when we cover this sin later in our week in Esther, not only did he bring him home in order to cover up one of his own sins, but remember, he's one of the mighty men. He brings him home from the battlefield. And there's no telling how many other people he could endanger by bringing Uriah off the battlefield. And then it was saying to his right and to his left, they had to be more vulnerable than they would have been. So not only did he commit adultery and then lie, deceive, to bring Uriah home, he put, his, he put perhaps the people in the military in danger. But then also, when Uriah won't play along with the plan, he has him killed. So it starts off with adultery, then moves to lying and deception, and then ends up in murder. That's what I mean when I say it's tough to compartmentalize sin. Just have that one little sin and just to keep it that way. It's a difficult thing to do. From time to time, I think we've all thought that you could do it. It's just this one area. I'm going to compromise here, but on everything else, I'm going to toe the line. I suspect we've all thought that, either consciously, subconsciously, at one time or another. But it usually doesn't work that way. And it wasn't working that way for the Jews in Malachi chapter 2. Malachi is addressing, in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, the same situation of intermarriage with pagan unbelievers that Ezra and Nehemiah address. Ezra and Ezra chapter 9, Nehemiah and Nehemiah chapter 14. This led to hypocritical worship on part of the Jews. They couldn't compartmentalize it. They had sexual sinning which is going to be divorced, really. But they had sexual sinning, and that sexual sinning then bled over into inappropriate, disingenuous worship. They couldn't isolate it. That's what really this chapter is all about. In this case, sin in the area of marriage led to sin in the area of worship. Now, that's just the example that's given here. But the principle is that it's difficult to compartmentalize sin. These just happen to be the illustrations that we get from this particular passage. I know a pastor in another city who confided in me that he had a member of his church who confessed to him that he was in an adulterous affair with another woman. And the adulterous affair was such that he was unable to compartmentalize and his worship, as you might expect, if you're in this constant state of walking out of faith with God, the worship was terrible. He even called me at the time. It shocked him personally so much he could hardly speak about it. But where the man said he was still in the bed of adultery, finished with the act of adultery, turned over, and there was these days of cassette tape players, and put in a tape of this particular pastor that lives in another city or something, and started playing the tape as the couple, as the adulterous couple was dancing getting in their Bible study. I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. It's difficult to compartmentalize. You know, you 
you think, well, I'm just, this is just this one area I'm going to do. Everything else is going to be fine. No, of course not. But you know what? The things that the Jews are doing in Malachi chapter 2 are a lot different. The sin wasn't quite the exact same, and it wasn't as dramatic. And I know that's a bit of a shocking example, but I want to give you hope on this kind of stuff, right? That's what people think they can do. They think I can just isolate this little part, and I'm just going to participate in, in this little aspect of sin. But then I'm going to turn everything else down. How do you know you can do that? I propose that you need different things. And this passage is going to propose that as well. Many look at Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, and think that it's primarily a passage that condemns divorce. And it does do that. But there's more to this passage than just that. The primary message of the passage is, as you probably have guessed already, it's difficult to compartmentalize sin. That's the real message about marriage, divorce, and then remarriage to pagan Gentiles, and then inappropriate worship is the example that's being used. But that's the principle. It's difficult to compartmentalize sin. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, the opening verse speaks to Jews. In fact, this section is speaking to Jews who had intermarried with foreigners. Same situation as in Nehemiah did. We see it all contemporary. It's speaking to Jews who had intermarried with foreigners, or we could say non-believers. By the way, in this passage and in the passage in Ezra, also in the passage in Nehemiah, I said it, I'll say it again. This is not talking like simply a prohibition against interracial marriage. That's not it at all. There was a prohibition in the age of Israel against marrying outside of the covenant community, and there was a reason for that. Because those outside of the covenant community tended to be excluded because they were unbelievers, most of them. There was one glaring exception, that's Greeks. But most of them were unbelievers, and so it pulled down the spiritual rights of those who did that. The biggest example that we can possibly think of is, of course, King Solomon. And it ruined him. He could have a thousand women and not be ruined anyway. Even if they were all believers, he'd probably be ruined. But, but they, 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 he was, he was, that's true. But the, the, the pagan women certainly brought him down. But the point is, the passage is addressing specifically the Jews who had intermarried with foreigners or non-believers. It is not, listen now, it is not addressing the unbelievers with whom the Israelites were intermarrying. It's not to them. This is not, this, this isn't a command, this commandment that is just to unbelievers. It, the commandment to unbelievers is believe, trust Christ, trust Yahweh, not clean up your life. The cleaning up your life part is for believers. So this passage is addressed to the Jews who are intermarried with foreigners. Look at chapter 10, chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. It begins with a rhetorical question. It's been a few weeks since we've been on these rhetorical questions in Malachi, but this is Malachi's style. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of foreign gods. As for the man who does, not, who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awaits an answer or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. So the, the answer to the rhetorical question that comes in the beginning are fairly simple. The first, yes, we do all have one father. Yes, we do. Now, the one father there is a bit ambiguous. 
more predicated to me that referring to Abraham. It could be referring to God the Father, but not as like, so do we all have one Father, Abraham? Yes, we do. Yes, one God has created us. Yes, he has. And in answer to the question, the rhetorical question, why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to proclaim the covenant of our fathers? The answer to that question is the Jews dealt treacherously because at, in the, at their court, they did not respect God. And they didn't respect their responsibility to be faithful to him. Right, to proclaim the covenant probably has broader implications than simply violating God's mandate with regard to intermarriage, although that's the specific context. That's what is specifically in view here. If we broaden the context into an area of significance, all who play it to play carry with it God's disapproval. Not just the betrayal of faith in marriage. Of course that one does. But a betrayal of faith in business does as well. Betrayal of faith in friendships does as well. Betrayal of faith in in some sort of contract does as well. Those carry with it God's disapproval. God expects us as those who are his followers, those who have been saved by grace through faith, to treat other people with honesty. He doesn't expect dishonesty from his children. A dishonest Christian businessman does much harm. That's not being an honest witness. That's not being good ambassadors for Jesus Christ. So all betrayals of faith carry with them God's disapproval. With regard to the idea of intermarriage with unbelievers, in this case, the Jewish men were intermarrying with pagan women who were unbelievers. But with regard to this idea of intermarriage with unbelievers, Paul is going to make the same point in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, chapter 6, rather, verses 14 through 16, he makes the same point. Believers are not to intermarry with unbelievers. In fact, he talks about being unequally yoked. And even there, the context could be broader than what we give it credit for. The context there could even include being in business or being in some sort of intimate relationship with an unbeliever. Think about it in business for just a minute. If you've got a believer who believes in integrity and a business partner who's a 50-50 partner who does not, they're going to make decisions when it comes time to decide how are we going to handle this tricky situation of the relationship. But certainly, it is not the right thing to do for a believer to knowingly marry an unbeliever. I know it happens sometimes where people get fooled. How on earth? I've seen it most of the time with real pretty girls. And they'll bring somebody to church who you can tell is not really interested but pretends to be. And I've seen this both in our church and the churches that I've attended in the past. You can tell they're not really interested, but they're interested in the girl. So they pretend to be interested in the message. And then after the marriage, guess what happens? You guessed it. Give it six weeks, eight weeks. But there's going to come a time when that guy says, I don't think I'm really interested. Well, you knew that. You weren't paying attention to me. Well, I thought this was important to you. Well, it turns out it wasn't important to me. Does it need issue? I mean, not only did he get he doesn't even pay for it. Well, I'm not interested. Then what do you do? See, some of the research needs to be done beforehand. Then you're going to stay in that marriage. We'll talk about that a little bit later. You're going to stay in that marriage and do the best you can to win your husband or your wife over. Unfortunately, it's most, mostly what I've experienced. It's men choose women. It's women want to believe that the man really wants to have a relationship. They really 
because sometimes they just do it. So I don't know what the answer is except for that's an honest question. Paul makes the same point in the New Testament. In Israel, intermarriage with pagan Gentiles meant excommunication from the covenant community, special excommunication from the world. You didn't get to worship. You didn't get to attend temple worship if you were walking out of covenant with the Gentiles. So we don't have the same prohibition in the New Testament. But the reality is the same. Psalm 66, 19, an Old Testament passage, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. One of the prerequisites for worship in the New Testament is that we're walking in covenant with God. If it's, if it's going to be genuine worship, if it's going to be hypocritical worship, tell Blaine Tamale, you know, stay up and go. But if it's genuine worship, then you need to be walking in fellowship with God, or it doesn't count. Whether that's praying or singing or listening to the Word taught or teaching a class yourself, you need to be walking in fellowship with God for that to be effective worship. So verse 12 tells us that in, in terms of the custom of Israel, intermarriage ended up in excommunication. Then in verse 13, and this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because you no longer regard the offering or accept it with favor from your hands. And so here's the deal. One sin leads to another. They intermarry. Then they come in to temple worship, and they think, that because they weep tears, that it's all going to be fine. But it's all a sham. The sin of intermarriage led to hypocritical worship. These people were trying what, in an art day, would be called crocodile tears, disingenuous tears, fake tears, phony tears, because their offerings weren't accepted. Listen, God doesn't need those offerings. God will accept the offering of the one who's walking in fellowship with him. And I'll tell you this right now, and I mean it with all my heart. If a person's either a non-Christian or a Christian's walking out of fellowship and you're writing a check or putting money in the offering plate because you think you're doing it for duty, you may as well save it. At least save it for a time when you know you're in fellowship with God because it's worthless. God doesn't accept. There's no value to an offering that comes from either an unbeliever or a believer that's not walking in fellowship with him. Way, way back in the early days of our church, if you were earning a year or two income, I had a friend who was a businessman in Houston who was quite wealthy. I wasn't quite sure if he was a believer or not at the time. At the time, I actually later found out, I don't think he was a member, but he was earning but he told me around the end of the year, and he said, listen, I understand you have a church. I said, well, yeah, we do. He said, well, is it a tax-exempt organization? I said, yeah, all churches in the state of Texas are tax-exempt organizations. Each by its definition, you don't want to have to. It has to be because it's Texas paperwork. Churches are automatically able to receive receive corporate income. He said, well, good, because I've got several friends of mine that would like to dump some money somewhere. At the end of the year, just wondering if you could write us a check. And I still I have that friend's email address, and I text him. I tell him, I tell Pastor Kevin, I need you to come back. And I said, Thank you, as you just said I could do. A year from then, do you even think I'm going to see you? He said, Well, I might not. I said, Well, how about you? Come away a little bit, and I said, "Please, maybe 
So it's not just a people pleaser guy. There were because you know I think that she was this Moabite woman over here looks pretty nice, and this Edomite looks pretty nice. Maybe I'll marry her. These were fellows that had been married to Jewish women. They leave their Jewish wives in order to marry a younger pagan woman. I say that's a dirty dog to come under. It is. Guess what? So does God. That's the context. When God says, I hate divorce in just a minute, this is the context in which he's saying it. Look at verse 14. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. There's no no place in the Old Testament where the covenant vows of marriage are given. So this implies that they did do so. Sometimes people think that they made marriage as, as such in Israel. But maybe not. Maybe there was a time when they certainly made some sort of covenant vow. This at least implies it. But this is a terrible thing to do. They were trading them in from your bottle. Now, guys, I'll tell you something. In real life, that never works. That doesn't happen. Not in, not in the age of Israel. You know it's not in you're going to abuse a woman now and to use up her youth and then and to just suck up all the vitality out of her. And then when you've used her up, since you've got the money, you think I expect that that's the way it was in Israel, since you have all the money, then you set her aside and then get a younger model. And you think God's going to honor that? No way. That's not the way God works. Not only are you insulting his integrity by trading this wife of your youth in for a newer model, a pagan model, look what you're doing to her. You're kicking her out. She has very, very little of a prayer in that culture. An older woman in that culture had almost no opportunity to remarry. There's a possibility perhaps that she's younger, but you don't. This is a horrible thing that these people are doing. Now you're going to see later on in verse 16 why he said, I hate divorce. I hate this. It comes to think verse 15 to be the most difficult verse in the whole book of Malachi when it comes to interpretation. The wording is admittedly cumbersome. No matter what translation you have in front of you tonight, I'm going to read the New American Standard. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. The wording is cumbersome, but the message seems to be this. God intends for legitimate marriages to last. These guys were, in effect, committing two sins, double sins. They were divorcing, divorcing their Jewish wife, one sin. They were intermarrying with foreign wives second sin. If they even had a modicum of the Spirit's influence in their lives, they wouldn't do that. That's the idiom. If, if the Holy Spirit had even influenced them a tiny bit, you would never do something like this. Even just a little bit. What Malachi is saying is, this is not God-like at all. This has nothing to do with Jewish women. This has nothing to do with Yahweh. You're on your own here. If you treat a woman like that, you're on they were trivializing marriage. They were abusing their wives. I know that word abuse 
probably will be done. Today's culture, I think some people try to reach and it probably is not, doesn't raise to that level. And it hurts all women who are truly abused. But these were truly abusing their wives. They're going to use them until they don't have any use for them anymore. And then they're going to leave. God did not honor that. He didn't honor Israel. He's not going to honor today, not ever. Now, verse 16 is just one of the two most well-known verses in Malachi. God hates divorce. The, the text says this, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong. That could also mean covering with violence says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not be as the second In August of 2000, that about 11 years ago, I was on my first major overseas mission trip to Pakistan. I was in Almaty, Pakistan. There were pastors from five of the Khan countries there. I was teaching sociology and writing science classes. Really, really hot out of that. But it was a really great experience. And one of the things that was an interesting dynamic to that conference was since there were people there that spoke Kazakh, and then everybody there was at least from the former Soviet Union in one way or another, they almost all of them spoke Russian. Of course, the only time I've ever done this where I actually went through two interpreters. I spoke, I spoke in English, and then it was actually Margaret, my interpreter from Ukraine that I real well since then, she, she interpreted into Russian, and then a girl next to her interpreted the English and the Russian both, she spoke both languages, into Pakistan. You can imagine that was a, that was a little tiring for all of us, because not only did I have to say something and then stop, before I said the next thing, and then didn't continue on. It's difficult to keep your train of thought because it was extra long. There was another interpreter in the middle, but they did a phenomenal job. Somehow, during the question and answer session, somebody decided to ask me a question that was not related to the subject of sociology. So they raised a question about verse 16 of Malachi chapter 3. It wasn't my subject, but they, they raised a question about divorce. I tried to answer the question. And then, not the Russian interpreter, but the Kazakh interpreter interrupted me. And she said, Dude, I think I see what the problem is. You've got slightly different translation than the one that you're using. In my Bible, it says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord. I think your Bible is going to say something like that. The Kazakh Bible didn't. The Kazakh Bible read this way, and it should be that way. If a man hates his wife, that's a little bit of a different translation, a little bit of a different idea. In fact, the translator should have realized that doesn't fit the context of this passage at all, even if, that's, even if they thought that's what the grammar said. They shouldn't have done that. The way it happened is Kazakh, who was translating the Bible into Kazakh, didn't have a brilliant, didn't have any ability in Hebrew and Greek. So they they translate. They did have some ability, and so they took the New International Version, and then so the Kazakh version was not a translation from the original language. It was a translation from the New International Version, which still doesn't do that. But, but somehow they twisted it, and the sad part was when we got back home, 
good marketing to say this is you know professional service center that they're providing to Planned Parenthood. This is why Planned Parenthood is a good company. Your dream is to live there because we have got the professional staff. Not not what you say is what is inevitable. But it gets people in. We get seven left in Boston. Those patients are both those patients are already viable in Boston, even though it's a terrible time to go through. You can't really get them out of town. It's not really like Boston or Boston. It's hoping that you can get them early here where the flu doesn't matter really good because they really need to be delivered. But guess what? Fund-wise, it doesn't cover the whole patient base. So so the country and the offices go, I hate the Lord. Serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Like, not just serve the Lord. Serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Have him as a cornerstone. Brooks Barnhouse has a company that goes research on a variety of diseases, primarily kidney disease. And in March of 2003, they released the results of a major study on the abortion in the United States. And I want to quote you just a couple of things from that. For many years, it has been reported in our experience that the divorce rate between Christians and non-Christians is 50%. And I've even quoted some of those older studies. And while that is technically true, technically true, there's really more to the story than that. Now, let me quote just a couple things from Barnett because I think you might be encouraged by this. The study showed that the percentage of adults who have been married and divorced varies from segment to segment. Each segment is segmented slightly. For instance, the group with the most prolific experience of marriage ending in divorce are downscale adults. The way Barnett is using that term is more socioeconomic level adults. Downscale adults. 39% of all marriages in the U.S. Baby boomers, 38%. Those aligned with a non-Christian faith, 38%. African Americans, 36%. And people who consider themselves to be liberal on social and political matters, 37%. So you see, they're all kind of in that alignment between 39 and 37, 39-36%. I continue with Barnett. Among the population segments with the lowest likelihood of having been divorced or sexually committed are Catholics, 28%, Evangelicals, 26%, upscale adults, and by that we're talking about upper socioeconomic status, 22%, Asians, 20%, and those who deem themselves to be conservative on social and political matters, 28%. And thinking to you, I think obviously some overlap here. There's one could be an evangelical in our sense, considering themselves conservative on political matters and, and so forth. I'll, I'll go back to Barnett. Born again Christians who are not evangelical are indistinguishable from the national average on matters matters of faith, 32%. That's that statistic that you just saw. Non evangelical Christians do have simply the same average, 32%. Again, back to Barnett. In fact, Evangelicals and non-evangelical born-again Christians are combined into one aggregate class of born-again adults. Their divorce figure is statistically identical to that of non-born-again adults, 32% and 32%. And this is how he closes this article. And this is the thing. This is 2008, but it's still current in 2008. I quote Barnett. 
there no longer seems to be much of a stigma attached to religion. And now it is now seen as an unavoidable life matter. Interviews with young adults suggest that they want their initial marriage to last, but are not particularly optimistic about the possibility. There is also evidence that many young people are moving toward embracing the idea of serial marriage, in which a person is married two or three times, seeking a different partner for each phase of their adult life. That's the church. That's Malachi 3. That's exactly what was happening back in the days of the Jews. They had this one for their youth. We're tired of her, and we're going to have me a new one for my adult years. God doesn't play that. But he said all this. Let me say this once again. Please listen with ears that hear. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. There is an unpardonable sin. You mentioned in Matthew chapter 12. The unpardonable sin is Jewish religious leaders saying that Jesus performed miracles in the power of Satan. In other words, rejecting who he was. That's the unpardonable sin. But divorce is not the unpardonable sin, even though some treat it as though it was. That's simply not a biblical concept. God can and does forgive any sin, provided that sin is brought to him in an honest way. So we need to be careful with our with our attitude towards divorced Christians. I just got two thirds. If you put them all together, it's thirty-two percent. One percent fail, one percent are partiality. Listen, I know there's a lot of people who believe in that. I understand that. It's not the unpardonable sin. Sometimes we can move on. In the Old Testament, a marriage could always be ended by the husband going to the community leaders and presenting a written bill of divorce, which would then permit his wife to remarry. That's Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 2. However, it's never stated specifically what constituted grounds for divorce, and that caused all kind of problems. The early rabbinic sages argued over whether the grounds for divorce would be adultery by itself, if that alone constituted grounds for divorce, or whether the husband could divorce his wife for any reason. The calculation made the chicken, a very famous social life here in Houston, that was well known for divorcing her husband because he wanted her to take the chicken to everybody on Bob Night and stood next to her in line in the movie one time several years back. They liked the chicken. I said, yeah, that's the one that just divorced her husband because she didn't, didn't, you know, didn't want to touch chicken. Don't add me in some of your doubts. I deserved it, but it's the truth. So there's this argument. Is it adultery alone? Rabbis had this argument. It's adultery alone. Can you do it for any reason? Well, guess what some of the animations go on to do? For any reason. And that's why Jesus comes down with a sledgehammer on them. Mark chapter 10, verses 2 through 9, he totally rejects that view. He even tells them, listen, the only reason Moses gave you an out at all was because you were stubborn and hard of heart. That's the only reason he gave you an out at all. There are Christians who divorce for inappropriate reasons. Now, in the New Testament, there's but one reason given. That's adultery. That's clear. But there are Christians who divorce for inappropriate reasons, eventually confess the sin, repent of it, 
and in due time, remarried and are happy in their remarriage. The amount of pain that they had to go through to get there may not be worth it to them, but there are people that are fulfilled in that way. So it can happen. It is not the unpardonable sin. I am in no way advocating divorce tonight. But I want us to have a biblical view of it. Sometimes we think God can forgive adultery. He can forgive fornication. He can forgive stealing. But divorce, no way. Can that happen? Yes, you can. People can move on. But there has to be, I think, before people can move on, I think there has to be an honest discussion. If it, wasn't, if it was not a legitimate divorce, I think both parties, that's the new couple, however long it's been since the first since that has happened, I think they need to sit down and say, we need to get clear about this. And perhaps what happened before wasn't right. Let's, let's make it right now. And I, can't make, I can't go back and rewind history, but let's make it right now. So I'm not advocating divorce. I'm not trying to give people an excuse. I'm not trying to come up with a gimmick. Well, I don't like her, but I'm going to divorce her and confess it later. I have somebody tell me that. And I'll just take the punishment. I say, no, you won't be able to take the punishment. And if you're already thinking that, you're not going to be able to take the punishment God's going to lay on you. He doesn't allow himself to be manipulated that way. We don't get God on a technicality. But at the same time, we need to be clear that God's grace extends to Divorced Christians as well. God's grace extends out to those Christians. Verse 16, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. That's pretty clear. It's unambiguous. It's a statement that almost all agree is a universal statement of divine distaste of divorce. In other words, it applies to the Old Testament, it applies to the New Testament as well. Now, you may be thinking, at least if you were here with us in the studies of Ezra and Nehemiah, didn't Ezra command divorce? Yes, he did. He'd be right if you were thinking that. He tells the Jewish remnant in Ezra chapters 9 and 10 to put away their foreign wives, to divorce the women that they had left the Jewish wives for. In the New Testament, Paul tells the believing spouse to stay put. Don't leave. Once you're married, say you become a believer after marriage, your spouse does not. That doesn't give you the right to leave your spouse. Say, well, I'm, I'm not supposed to be under unequal yoke, so I'm out of here. No, no, no. It's not that easy. You're commanded to stay with that spouse, be a witness to them, and by your behavior to win them over. That's the New Testament teaching on this. But in Ezra, it's just a slightly different. This is a specific situation that Ezra is dealing with. He already had these Jewish men who were divorcing their older Jewish wives, marrying younger pagan women, bringing them into the worship of Israel. And when Ezra finds that out, he's apoplectic. He's so mad. He's like, you get rid of all of them. Which, as an Ezra, we know that, that they did eventually. So we can't use this the Ezra passage to say, well, no, if I find out my husband or wife is not positive toward the Word of God or positive to God, get rid of her. If I find out she's not willing to leave, I'll get rid of her. As far as telling her, no, 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 no. In common sense, I hope we say, that's what it says. 
by his divorce, goes forward to the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, and wealth be understood as ours. God looks at this situation in Israel, where these men were treating these women this way, as a violence done against the women. That's why I used the word abuse earlier, and I think it's fair to do that. They were abusing these women. God says, I hate them. God expects us to honor our children by himself. So take heed to your spirit that you do not give place in summary once again this passage is about divorce but it's about more than divorce it's about the difficulty of isolating this sin yes it says a lot about divorce but it's really about isolating sin you can't treat a woman that way in fact let's just broaden it you can't treat anybody that way you can't treat another human being that way and just use them like they're some object to be used for your pleasure and then discard it you can't do that and have that kind of mental attitude and think you're going to be able to isolate that. I'm going to do that, but in every other area of my life, I'm going to exercise integrity. I'm going to show that I love the Lord by it. I'm not going to do all these things. You can't do it. This passage is about the difficulty of the isolation of sin. These Jews had divorced the wives of their youth, which was sinful, and they married foreign wives, which was sinful. And then they tried to participate in hypocritical worship, which was sinful. 